0: Issues Etc. relies on a small group of faithful supporters called the Issues Etc. Reformation Club. These listeners have pledged to become monthly or annual contributors to Issues Etc., and this allows us to budget our expenses more efficiently. Now, there are four levels of giving the confessor, $25 monthly, or an annual gift of $250, the apologist, $50 monthly, or an annual gift of $500, the Reformer, $100 monthly or an annual gift of $1,000, and the Patron, $200 monthly or an annual gift of $2,000. Reformation Club benefits include shirts, books, broadcast transcripts, and advertising for confessional Lutheran churches. Learn more about joining the Issues Etc. Reformation Club on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org, and look for the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses, or call in 618-223-8385 the issues et cetera reformation club
1: you got all these great answers to all these great questions you got all these great answers
0: to all these great questions in 1st Timothy 1 the apostle Paul says that he has handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does that mean? Then just a couple chapters later in 1 Timothy 3, he says that Jesus was vindicated or justified by the Spirit. How should we understand that statement? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's time to respond to your unanswered Bible questions. Joining us, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He's a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome. Oh, great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller1. And he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Pastor Wolfmiller, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. First for you, Pastor Wolfmiller, Logan in Minnesota. I was baptized as an infant in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America back in the late 90s. My question is, considering the current state of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, is my baptism valid? So fill us in on some context. What's the current state? And answer Logan's questions, if you would.
1: Sure. Well, the current state of the ELCA is, I mean, it's a dumpster fire. It's an absolute, it's part of this American mainline progressive push away from the authority of scripture, which basically means everything goes and we want to make ourselves as acceptable, as we possibly can to the culture so adopting every left-leaning political and theological axiom and abandoning the scriptures on the way anything that would be offensive to modern sensibilities is simply thrown out and so you have all sorts of questions about human anthropology human sexuality right and wrong questions about the office of the ministry And most troubling in this context is questions about the doctrine of the Trinity. There's been the incursion of feminist theology, which would say that the language that the Bible teaches us, the language of Father and Son and Holy Spirit is patriarchal and harmful to people. And so we should change at best the language, at worst the even theology of it, so that the Holy Trinity is sometimes spoken of in these progressive circles as the creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, or even mother, daughter, and spirit, or wisdom, and that you have a creator and we and Sophia, it gets mixed in there. And in some places, that confusing language for the Trinity. There was a document that was published and even debated. I don't know if it was approved a few years back in the ELCA that wanted to be open about different expressions of our theological position on the Trinity or their theological position on the Trinity, which opened up this for practice. So some churches will even baptize in the name of the mother and daughter and and Sophia. And this is ridiculous. I would like to say to if any in the ELCA, especially leadership are listening, look at what you are doing to your people, that they even have to question the validity of their baptism, because if you're monkeying around with the Lord's word and the Lord's doctrine, it's absolutely horrendous and inexcusable and there should be no tolerance for this kind of nonsense in the church it's just obscene this kind of as if theology and the lord's word was a plaything for us to try to fashion to make us feel better it's just absolutely horrible and so that the question is there i shame on the elca but to the questioner to logan here and really to this question of the validity of baptism here's what we want to say Is that when the lord jesus institutes baptism and we go especially for this question on baptisms validity we go to matthew chapter 28 where jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and teaching them to obey all that i've commanded you and look i'm with you always even to the end of the world so that jesus gives us this Great gift of being his disciples. And that gift comes through baptism and through teaching. And we have this baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we recognize from this text that a baptism that's given, so that would be water applied in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the understanding of the Holy Trinity, that God is one God and three persons, that that is a valid baptism. If someone is baptized for example in the mormon church where the doctrine of the trinity is denied and rejected it would not be a valid baptism even if they use the right words it would not be a valid baptism if someone is baptized in a church that confesses the holy trinity say a lutheran church that confesses the holy trinity but they they use the wrong words either accidentally or whatever so maybe instead of saying in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit they drop the ofs there i think this is probably a common practice and really too bad they baptize in the name of the father and son and holy spirit and that's not using the words that jesus gave but in the context of the confession of the trinity it's understood as a valid baptism so where the church confesses the trinity and baptism is applied with god's name the word you have a valid baptism the condition of the elca now would not invalidate a baptism then so Say you're baptized in a Trinitarian church that loses its Trinitarian doctrine, your baptism remains valid. It has to do with the confession that, that is there when the baptism is given. The question is, what was the state of the ELCA then in the early 90s? And while I think most of the churches in the ELCA were still baptizing with the right words and with the proper understanding of the Trinity, the very fact that you have to question it is really heartbreaking and really terrible. I would go back and see if you have a baptism certificate or who the pastor was that was there to make sure that they weren't a rogue congregation that was fooling around with different doctrines or words of the trinity and i would think that you are probably okay but it wouldn't hurt to go back and take a look at it and see so it'll be a, a pretty a matter of historical investigation but boy for those who are listening now may we never Start wandering from the truth in such a way that people will have to go back and question the validity of the baptisms that are happening. What a tragic thing. Maybe one last thing if you can't find it, and if there's indications that maybe the pastors who were there doing the baptism at the time were goofing around with alternative formulas or even alternative ideas of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, then it might be something to talk to your pastor about and say, I know there's only one baptism, I'm unsure if I have been baptized, so could I be baptized? And I've done that a handful of times when we couldn't confirm that someone was baptized. And so you're, you're giving the gift of baptism and you're trusting the Lord to know that he's the one who claims us in baptism. And we rejoice in the assurance that we have from that gift of baptism. That's the point. The Lord wants us to know that in baptism, he's claimed us as our own. And he wants to take away question marks by baptism and woe to the churches who would add question marks to the Lord's gift of baptism
0: Pastors Brian Wolfmiller and Brian Ketchelmeyer responding to your unanswered Bible questions your link to issues etc I'm Todd Wilkin Folks Life Sunday is January 21st in 2024 this year's theme is Just As I Am Lutherans for Life has produced free Life Sunday resources check them out at lutheransforlife.org lutheransforlife.org On the other side of the break, the question about the necessity of pastors.
2: One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You're listening to Issues Etc.
3: Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran music.
1: Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org.
2: St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wildwood, Missouri is a proud sponsor of Issues Etc. And if you enjoy the relevant, Christ-centered teachings presented on this program, then you should come and join us at St. Paul's on Sundays at 9 a.m., where you will hear sermons that proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins and enjoy in-depth Bible studies to help us grow as disciples. For more information, check us out at stpaullutheranwildwood.org.
0: We are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer are our guests. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Andrew has a question. We are from a very small Lutheran Church, Missouri Centered congregation and have learned that the elders do not think pastors are necessary. One does not believe pastors are in the Bible at all. The others think the pastors are nice, but really anyone can do their work. We are vacant, so you can imagine the problems this thought causes. We tried to talk about apostolic succession, what the Augsburg Confession teaches, but they wanted to know solely what the Bible says. I would love it if you discuss this so we could share the podcast with the congregation.
3: Well, I understand this idea of wanting to know what the Bible says solely or particularly, but we also must understand that we are Lutheran and we do hold to the Book of Concord. So there is a historicity of the Lutheran faith and the Lutheran church itself. The church didn't just come into existence yesterday or a year ago. Instead, we go in continuity with that Book of Concord, 1580, and of course the Augsburg Confession, 15. 30 which when we confess the article of justification through faith alone immediately in the next article article 5 we do talk about the pastoral office that we may obtain such faith so the pastoral office is not a man-made arrangement now we do have auxiliary offices in the missouri senate that help or assist their helping office to the pastoral office but the pastoral office is the one office instituted by christ himself And so this, of course, you go back to John chapter 20, and I think that's where you really want to see that Jesus is sending out the disciples there. He's sending them out as apostles when he breathes on them and says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so it's in this apostolic office that they are too speak the words of law and gospel either unlocking heaven with the gospel the good news because of the blood of jesus and jesus our high priest in heaven or locking up uh, the heavens with the, the stern law saying that apart from the righteousness of christ we cannot enter into heaven And so you you have Jesus sending out the disciples. You have that specifically in Matthew chapter 28 with the institution of holy baptism. I mean, it goes together, go into all nations, you know, while you're going, baptizing. I mean, so this is what the apostles are sent to do in this preaching office. When we have the, the scripture itself, we see early in the book of Acts that When they go from place to place, they start, of course, on the synagogue, the local synagogue there. And if the synagogue receives them, great, that they understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah. Or if they go to a synagogue that doesn't receive them, they go out to the Gentiles. So you see that kind of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. So specifically in Acts chapter 20, this is where you see Paul gathering together those who have been placed into this office. So in Acts chapter 20, he's going to, to get the overseers the elders the pastors these are all words used synonymously an overseer is a bishop a pastor is a shepherd one who is an elder is one who is mature in the faith in this office to preach to teach the good news so next chapter 20 here you have paul saying pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock That's the image of a pastor and sheep in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the language of a bishop, but one who theologically oversees the theology that's being taught there to care for the church of God, which he obtained, which he obtained with his own blood. And so you have that unique understanding there at Ephesus, that this is where these men have been placed in this office. And they're warned that after Paul leaves, there's going to be fierce wolves that will come in even among them themselves who will stop teaching depart from the apostolic teaching of the doctrine that we have in the scripture now thankfully we we have the scripture as a gift from god for posterity's sake so that we can be certain and sure what the apostles themselves have taught and what they proclaimed so in paul's letters specifically to titus into timothy we see paul talking to successors in this pastoral office And in particular, in Titus chapter one, at verse five, this is where you see Paul saying to Titus, this is the reason I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. In other words, put things into order that are lacking. And what's it that's lacking? Well, when there's not a man placed into that preaching office. Now, of course, he uses the language here of an Elder, appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. Now that word elder is being used synonymously with this pastoral office as teachers, as preachers, as bishops, as those who are overseeing their shepherds, their pastors of the flock, just like we saw that in Acts chapter 20. But he wants this to be done in every town. That's the desire is to have a preacher in every town. And I understand that there's some circumstances in a small town where you can't have a preacher as readily because of financial reasons of paying full-time salary or whatever it may be. But that's why in the Missouri Center we've encouraged such things as the specific ministry pastor program for such situations that a man can be raised up and placed into the preaching office itself. But when you go from Titus chapter one, you also see this in first Timothy where Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy chapter three, again, using these words interchangeably of overseer, of one who is going to be an elder, one who's going to be the teacher. And then of course, you see this most uniquely in 1 Peter chapter five. And so this is Peter, who's one of the apostles, one of the original 12 that's been sent out, the original 11, of course, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, but one of the original 11 who were sent out as the apostles, the sent ones. And when Peter is writing this letter, Peter ends the letter in chapter 5 by saying, So I exhort the elders among you okay? So he's saying the elders among you as a fellow elder. So here the apostle Peter is calling himself a fellow elder. So the understanding that we have in the Missouri Synod of a lay elder is not the same thing that we have in the scripture. This is an arrangement we made here in the Missouri Synod to help the pastoral office, which is that one preaching office. And so you can see a passage like this where Peter is using that word synonymously with his office as apostle to these successors of the apostles. And so notice that what Peter says in chapter, chapter five, he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock. That's the word pastor. So it's pastor the flock, just like Peter was told to feed the sheep, to be a pastor, one who feeds the sheep with the word of God, in particular, the gospel, the good news through which the Holy Spirit works to give faith in Christ. So he says shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. Now that's that understanding of being an overseer, a bishop, an episcopos the one who is episcopeo, who is looking over the teaching, that it is in accord with the sound doctrine that has been given by the apostles as in the scripture itself. So exercising oversight, being a bishop, being an overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Again, that imagery of a flock, a shepherd, a pastor feeding the sheep. And then he goes on to say, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief pastor or the chief shepherd of course is jesus the great high priest so you see this all from the office of jesus who is the one mediator between god and man the one who is the true prophet the one who is the true high priest the one who is the apostle the true apostle and then he puts men into the office to speak his word in the stead and by his command so that the voice of jesus could be heard in our day in a gathering around the word and the sacraments
0: A question from anonymous, Pastor Wolf Miller, are there rules, regulations, or guidelines within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, or catechism about women teaching catechism to students? I'm very interested in learning more about what is appropriate for women to do and teach in the church. As always, thank you for your insight and guidance.
1: I don't know what our Missouri Synod says. If the CTCR has rules and regulations about this kind of thing, maybe a couple quick thoughts first every christian is a theologian which means that every single christian man woman child is a student of god's word and according to the vocations that god gives every christian is also a teacher this has to do especially with the fathers and the mothers and the grandfathers and the grandmothers so that every mom should consider herself to be a teacher so here's the words of the lord that i'm thinking of paul says to titus this is titus 2 4 admonish the young women to love their husbands to love their children to be discreet let me back up to verse 3. the older women likewise that they be reverent in behavior not slanderers not given to much wine teachers of good things and then it goes on to say what those good things are that they admonish the young women to love their husbands to love their children to be discreet chaste homemakers good etc etc We also have the example of Timothy who was taught by his mother and grandmother, these good things. So that the women of the church are teaching, especially they're teaching their children, the children and their grandchildren and other women, especially the older women are teaching the younger women. And so that's not only permissible in the church, but it's commanded that these things are being passed down from women to women from women to children. On the other hand, we have the, the two apostolic injunctions about women not being pastors, how we take it. Maybe there's a little bit more to it than that in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, where Paul will say, I don't permit a woman to preach or teach or have authority over a man. And so we want to make sure that, that we're keeping that injunction as well by not calling women into the office of public teacher, into the office of pastor, and to teaching men. And so then the question is simply, so how do we practically distinguish those two things? So we know that moms are always teaching their boys, but when does, for example, a child, a young boy, go from being a young man and in such a way that the women who are teaching in the church are now handing off that further teaching to the pastors of the church and so forth. And I think we kind of traditionally put it right around the confirmation age as the boys are becoming young men And we're letting that transition into that. The men are teaching as the boys get older, making sure that they're doing that while the women continue to teach the young women and and help train them up and so forth. So we're trying to press towards that apostolic ordering of things and recognizing what the scriptures have put in place. I'm not sure that there's a hard and fast rules, at least that I know of, but one of the things that we want to always be doing in the church is not like saying, well, how can I go to the edges before I step over the edge and do something wrong? But how can we as a a church body press towards faithfulness and doing this as well as we can? And so those are the, as far as I can tell, the scriptures that establish what we ought to be doing and the constraints on what we ought not to be doing.
0: Keith has a question for you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. There's a lot of discussion recently about the occupation in Israel and who are the rightful residents before the Jews escaped Egypt and settled in the promised land. Where did they live?
3: Yeah, This is an interesting question, because uh, obviously when you had Abraham come into the promised land, it was the land of Canaan, and it was the promised land because it's the land of the promise, the promise that this land would be given to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob and their descendants, and in particular in the city of Bethlehem, the baby boy of joy, is going to be born. And of course, in the city of Jerusalem, this is where he is going to come to the temple, to his own temple, and he'll be crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. In that land itself, that promised land, he's going to be buried and he's going to rise again. But prior to that, of course, you have this whole situation where Abraham is told by God that his descendants will end up in Egypt. And later on, when Jacob is father, it's his son Joseph who's sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt first. There's the big famine. And then the family is brought down to Egypt. And so when Joseph gives them some places to stay in Egypt, this is where we're going to talk about Goshen. And you'll see this like in Genesis chapter 45, where Joseph says, go back to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. So it's the land of Goshen there, which is kind of the northernmost part of Egypt near the Mediterranean Sea. So it's over in Egypt, northern part near the Mediterranean Sea. And that's the land of Goshen. That's where they end up in Genesis. That's where they're going to end up at the beginning of Exodus. And then of course, Moses is the one who will take them out of that land, the land of Goshen and into the promised land, the land of the promise of the Messiah, the seed who's gonna crush the serpent's head.
0: Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest along with Pastor Brian Wolf Miller. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. We've got a question about Jesus being vindicated or justified in the spirit. Next. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc., by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor.
2: Casting Christ's net on the internet. You're listening to Issues Etc.
1: Bethel Lutheran Church in Howard City, Michigan, preaches Christ and Him crucified. At Bethel, God's word of salvation is boldly proclaimed in all its truth, and the sacraments are rightly administered.
3: These means of grace help us peacefully navigate the craziness of this world. Bethel is centrally located between Grand Rapids and Big Rapids, just two miles east of U.S. 131.
1: Our divine services are at 9.30 a.m. Join us this Sunday to receive God's marvelous gifts of grace. Memoria
2: Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.
0: Luther Academy produces the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics Series. Their latest book is called Theological Anthropology and Sin. This book allows scripture and theology to speak to the question of who humans are and what belongs to their humanity. And it yields a permanent and essential portrayal of humans' nature, structure, identity, sex, and personhood. Find out more about theological anthropology and sin at lutheracademy.com lutheracademy.com. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. Pastor Wolfmiller, Mark in Tennessee, in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Jesus was vindicated or justified in the Spirit. Wasn't he justified by his perfectly lived life in the flesh? What is meant by in the Spirit? I'm very grateful for issues, etc.?
1: As far as I can sort it out, this is Paul's capturing of a hymn, perhaps, in the ancient church, or at least a poem there. And in this poetic language, it's talking about the resurrection of Jesus and what that means. We know the resurrection is credited to all three persons of the holy trinity jesus says that i will take up my life again the father will raise him from the dead on the third day even the spirit will raise jesus from the dead and so here the holy spirit has given jesus the resurrection and that resurrection now functions legally that's what justification is indicating to be declared righteous so that the resurrection of jesus is the declaration not only of his perfect life lived, but also of the satisfaction that he's accomplished in his suffering and death. And so the resurrection of Jesus, like Paul will say in Romans chapter five, that we're justified by his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is an indication that the sacrifice made on the cross is acceptable to God in place of humanity. So the picture that I've used, I think this is helpful is, if you can imagine a football game, and the running back gets the ball and he runs down the field. He crosses the goal line. He throws his hands in the air. He's celebrating. He's done the work. He's made the touchdown. But the points are not applied to the team until the official throws his arms up to indicate that it is indeed a touchdown. And now I guess they have to do a review booth and who knows whatever kind of stuff they do. to it. But the point is that as far as the runner's concerned, he crosses the goal line and it's finished. But then it has to be preached, if you will by the official, by throwing up his hands. And so the resurrection is the way that God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit throw up their hands and indicate that it's good. The sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross is good. It's sufficient for the salvation of the world. And Paul captures that theology here in this quick phrase. He was vindicated or justified in the spirit.
0: A question from Nathan in Perryville, Missouri. Pastor Ketchermeyer, I was reading in Treasury of Daily Prayer. The Old Testament lesson was describing Solomon's turning away from the Lord at the end of his life. The passage says that the women that he loved turned his heart after other gods. They built altars to the abominable gods of the Canaanites. My questions are, how many books of the Bible do we ascribe to Solomon? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Do we know of any other authors of the scriptures who are almost certainly in hell? (laughs) <laughs> that's,
3: well, the question here is, I would say, unresolved on whether or not we know certainly that he's in hell. There has been differences of opinion in the church, and typically the lines are drawn in this way. It's in the Eastern Church where they would still maintain that uh, Solomon is a saint, and that's why they actually have a feast day as a saint for Solomon. Whereas the Western Church, typically, because they never actually had a feast day for Solomon as a saint, you kind of get more in the Western Church the assumption that maybe he didn't quite make it. That he died unrepentant. I think that when we look at the scripture, we need to be careful here. The text itself does tell us what's happening there at that last state. It's telling us it's making an exclamation point. And I think that exclamation point is this that if you go away and go astray, and if you reject God, your heart is turned toward other gods, and you lose faith, this is the mortal sin that is that killing faith sin, then yes, if you die in that state, then of course there is no salvation for you. But I I think just with the tradition of the church, both East and West, we kind of just want to pause there a little bit because we hope that before uh, his deathbed that of course that he was repentant that's a hope that we have that god restored faith to him but I, i think that the text itself is interesting because what it's really pointing to is the fact that solomon's not the son of david that we're looking for we are looking for one who is greater than solomon and i think that if you look at it in this way that in the first kings chapter 11 you have the whole incident that's being played out here that solomon had all these wives and he turned away his heart okay so he went after these other gods as many wives as he had that's many gods he had kind of an idea which of course moses warned against in deuteronomy 17 so in essence you're going to see a fulfillment of what moses had warned against prior to entering into the promised land but I think that in that whole sequence of events that takes place in the previous chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 10, that's when the Queen of Sheba, she enters in Jerusalem because she hears of the wisdom of Solomon. So it's this whole idea of a Gentile entering into Jerusalem because of King Solomon. And I think that when we look at the Old Testament, again, whenever we see the Gentiles coming to the temple... That's the promised presence of God at that location, which always points to the incarnation, that you have the Gentiles being converted to faith. You have the Gentiles looking to the one who is the true God. And so this is a good thing that happened right there in the previous chapter with the Queen of Sheba. And I think that we want to take that into the understanding of what was taking place when you have Matthew talking about these events, when you have, for instance, Jonah, and Matthew says, one who is greater then Jonah is here which of course is Jesus. At the end of the book of Jonah ends with that question. You know that that kind of you're left with the question in that cliffhanger. Well, where was Jonah at the end of this? Remember Jonah was upset because he knew that the Gentiles were going to be converted to faith. He knew that God was steadfast and he was merciful and slow to anger and he knew that this was going to happen and the city wouldn't be wiped out. So Jonah ends on that strange kind of a cliffhanger there. Where was Jonah. Well, the assumption then, when Jesus says that's the sign, the sign of Jonah is going to be given, that as Jonah was in the the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man, and the Gentiles are going to be converted. So there's something key there with Jesus, talking about Jonah, one who is greater than Jonah, and it flows through in Matthew chapter 12, where then Jesus goes on and talks about the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the generation, and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of solomon and behold something is greater Than Solomon. So again, both with Jonah and with Solomon, Jesus is one who is greater than Solomon. So I mean, in that context itself, it would be kind of strange for me to see that you have Solomon being an unrepentant sinner. I mean, we don't know for certain or sure. I'll give you that. The text implies kind of it doesn't look too good, but our hope is that he was converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it would seem very strange to say that you have this unrepentant sinner who dies in a sin, but someone who's greater than that has come which is Jesus. Well, of course, Jesus is greater than any unrepentant sinner. Of course. But I think the whole point is this is the son of David. This is the one who has wisdom. Jesus is incarnate wisdom. And beyond that, when you you look in the book of Acts or even like in John, you have the portico of Solomon, the porch of Solomon. So you have this named after Solomon. And it does seem very strange that if the tradition of the Jews was that Solomon died in an unrepentant state, to go ahead and name that after him. That this is his porch. I mean, that'd be like naming the the porch the porch of King Ahab, or <laughs> I mean, King Ahaz, or or one of these other wicked kings that uh, you would not want to have that name associated with the temple itself. So it is interesting that that tradition continued, that that temple at the portico at the porch it's named after solomon so I, I think that when we look at this we're going to i think err on the side of the gospel and mercy knowing that god is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and have that hope that one day we will see solomon with us but again like i said at the beginning this has kind of been a debate throughout
1: the history of the church there's one verse that's interesting it, at the end of the same chapter referenced by the question first kings 11 And maybe to note that it indicates that when Solomon was older his heart was led astray so we would think that when he was younger and and writing the scriptures that we have the three books of the Bible that he was still in possession both not only of wisdom but also of the spirit by faith but then at the end of the chapter it says that Solomon verse 43 rested with his father's and was buried in the city of David his father that rested with his father's could indicate just that he died and he went to be buried but we also take it as a hint of what paradise is and eternal life. And so we hope, as Pastor Ketchemeyer said, even though it's not clear, it's clear he turned away, not clear if he repented, but, but we have that hope. But we have examples in the Bible of even prophets who are unbelieving when they prophesy. So the two examples that come to mind for me is Balaam, who Balak called the curse and he says, I can't curse, I can only bless. And so even though he's an enemy of God and God's people, he's prophesying rightly, and the other example that comes to mind is Annas, the high priest, who says that it's right for one to die for the sins of the people. And he thinks that he's talking about murdering Jesus so the Romans don't destroy them. But it's the scriptures indicate that he spoke right being the high priest so that he had that office. And even though he was an unbeliever, he was able to to speak what was true according to the Lord's word. And then we have the example of someone who wrote scripture, was a prophet and then fell away and then was restored and that's king david who wrote a number of uh, psalms that are given to us in the scripture and then when tempted with besheba becomes an adulterer and a murderer and a deceiver and he's lost the spirit and then nathan comes and preaches carefully repentance and the lord God, the Holy Spirit, works repentance in David and restores his salvation, and then he continues to be a prophet, the the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so we do have examples of prophecy coming even through the unbelief of the prophet and prophets losing their faith there as well. And this is so important. We look not to the faith of the person, but to the words of God. This is always the great confidence that we have, and given to us not only in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, but also in the, in the life of the church. There's a pastor who preaches and falls away from the faith. That doesn't make what he preached wrong. Those words stand or fall on their being based on God's word, not on the man's faith. We, of course, want faithful pastors, but our confidence is not in the man who's speaking, but in God whose words are being spoken.
0: Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest. He's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. We've got a question on non-abortive contraception next. Martin Luther on mental health, practical advice for Christians today is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number 1-800-325-3040 or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. book of the month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health.
2: Job saw the city as a wasteland, as if devoid of God, witnessing injustice to the poor by the corrupt, lawlessness of criminals, trafficking of children, blatant immorality, thinking God could not see wicked deeds done in the dark of night. Yet God never abandoned Job, nor his city, groaning for mercy. God is working through the living Redeemer, hands etched with salvation, pointing to the resurrection to come. Join us at lcms.org slash citymission to seek peace and shine the light in the city.
3: You are personally invited to join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in celebrating the theme, Just As I Am. January 14th through the 20th during Life Week 2024. Each theme day will explore a distinct aspect of life ministry through local activities, online educational events, interviews, and more. Find out more at lutheransforlife.org. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life.
1: To learn more, visit flsplano.org,
0: flsplano.org.
2: The cross is always relevant. You're listening to Issues Etc.
0: Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Concordia Lutheran, Geneseo, Illinois. Good Shepherd Lutheran, Marshall, Minnesota. Emmanuel Lutheran, Bosher City, Louisiana. Memorial Lutheran, Houston, Texas. Our Savior Lutheran, Milford, Illinois. Redeemer Lutheran, Lawrence, Kansas, St. John Lutheran, Mayville, Wisconsin, St. Paul Lutheran, Long Beach, California, Trinity Lutheran, Millstadt, Illinois, and Zion Lutheran, Pleasant Plains, Illinois. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. Sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. Journal. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller are our guests. Pastor Wolf Miller, Violet in Ohio. I recently have been troubled with the question of whether the use of non-abortive contraception is a sin, since the Bible doesn't seem to say much about it. Unfortunately, our synod, even in the conservative circles, is oddly silent on this issue. There seems to be greatly varying opinions, even amongst the conservative pro-life Lutherans I've talked to. It is a matter of conscience for me and many other Christians. Lutheran couples I've talked to would appreciate some direction on this issue, coming from a biblical perspective.
1: Sure. Be careful about what we're talking about here first. It's talking about non-abortive contraception. So we wanna be very clear that any sort of abortive contraception, including a number of forms of the birth control pills, should be considered completely off limits, that the act of terminating a life is murder in our biblical worldview so that takes that off the table so we're looking at non-abortive contraceptions and so there's things like barrier conceptions and things like this here's i think a framework to think about this first of all the command that we have from god is to be fruitful and multiply and that command has never been revoked the lord has never said okay that's enough you don't have to be fruitful and multiply anymore you've kept a commandment and it's fine no that command still stands for husbands and wives one of the great gifts of marriage Is the gift of matrimony, the gift of being mother and father, and the gift of having children. So we rejoice in the gift of children. And we recognize also that the separation, the technological separation of intimacy and the gift of children is bad. And it has been bad for our culture. It's been bad for our families. It's been bad for the world. There's always been kind of crude ways to do this in the past, but especially with the technological innovations that the last few generations have seen. There's a way to separate intimacy and children, and we wanna fight against that. Our culture has basically made it the rule that intimacy is for recreation. And oddly enough, it's now become a part of our identity, but maybe that's a little to the side, but the idea that intimacy is recreation, that's the rule and the exception is children. And the Christian teaching would be the opposite, that intimacy is for children, and the exception is intimacy apart from children. Now, does that mean and we say we can say at least that every Christian marriage that God has given is open always to the gift of children? And that's very important. But does that mean that we are then commanded to maximize our fertility? and to try to have as many children as we can, and so forth and so on, and that there would be no place for wisdom in the Christian life of saying, well, maybe having children at this point is not wise or is not good. I do not think that that wisdom is excluded from the Christian family. So that husband and wife might think of times when they would say, while it's good for us to come together as husband and wife, it would be a particular burden for us to have children. And that could be because there would be health issues involving the mother, involving fertility things, involving you know a history of pregnancies that resulted in deaths before children were born or for whatever reason. I think that there is a place for wisdom to say that even though we understand this is the exception, we think that this is a place of wisdom for us to take precautions against becoming pregnant. But even then, if the family does become pregnant, then they're receiving that child with joy. So it's hard to make rules about this. Here's what we ought to do and what ought not we to do. But I think that's the biblical parameters. And we have to be careful that the world's thinking does not shape our thinking in two ways. Number one, that we just agree with the world, or number two, that we think it's wisdom just to disagree with the world that we want to go back to the scriptures and say, what has the Lord given? What has the Lord commanded? And how can we rejoice in the Lord's gift of marriage and children and family and keep his commandments with the wisdom that he's given to us?
0: Hey, question from Beverly, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. Are God's people still the Israelites? Will they still be saved? Or has Jesus changed this outcome?
3: So, you know, th- this question will come up, especially right now with what's uh, taking place in uh, political issues in the middle east right now obviously bloodshed the violence terrorism islamic terrorism is bad it's not good but the modern state of israel the israelites that's a different nation that's not the people of israel that's not the people of the old testament the people of the old testament are the people of god who hear the word of god believe in the promises of the messiah And Israel is the church. I mean, the church is the ones who receive that message that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the seed that's gonna crush the serpent's head. And you'll see this in particular in Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus tells the parable about the vineyard, about how the master of the vineyard left the vineyard and he wanted to gather the good fruits. He sends his servants, which would be the prophets. They beat him, they mistreat him, they kill him, they stone him, and he does it again and they do it again and so he finally says well let me send my son and you know surely they're going to listen to the son but of course as soon as they see the son they say here is the air let us kill him and take the inheritance. And so that's gonna be the leaders. This is the priests, the Pharisees. These are the ones who are in this office to teach. They're to teach God's word. And so these are the ones that now hear Jesus saying this and they know that Jesus is speaking against them when they give the answer because Jesus asked the question, well, what do you think the owner of vineyard is gonna to do to these tenants, these uh, vine dressers? Well, they answer the obvious question, He's going to kill them. He's going to put those wretched, miserable people to death, and he's going to let out the vineyard to other tenants uh, who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So that's Matthew chapter 21 with that parable. He's going to give this out to other vine dressers, other workers of the harvest, which, of course, is going to be the apostles. So you're going to replace that office of priest Aaron and his sons is going to be replaced with the apostolic preaching office, and the apostles are going to be the ones who are sent out. They are going to be the ones that now proclaim this message. They will take this message from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth to include the Gentiles, so that message goes out to the ends of the earth. And of course, in the next chapter, Matthew, or two chapters later, I should say, Matthew chapter 23, this is where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. I mean, right after that whole parable uh, of sending the prophets and they are being stoned, they are being killed. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And so then he goes on and says, see, your house is left to you desolate that's the house, the, the house of Israel. It's going to be desolate. It, so no longer are they going to have these children. And this, of course, is going to be the argumentation that Paul will use in Galatians that you're going to have, yes, two different sons of Abraham. Uh, Ishmael is a son of the slave, Hagar, who does not believe in the justification through faith alone in the personal work of Christ alone. But those who are true sons of abraham through the promise through sarah are the ones who trust in christ and and so you have that distinction that paul will use in galatians and most particularly paul will use that distinction in uh, romans chapter 9 where he talks about how this word came to the israelites and he makes it clear that they rejected it and not all children of abraham are actually his offspring but rather through isaac shall your offspring be named Uh, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So twice Paul will use that reference of being sons of the promise by faith. We are heirs of the promise of Christ. We inherit the inheritance of the eternal kingdom through his death. His death on the cross earns and merits gains for us that inheritance that now is given to us freely as a gift uh, through the gospel message. And so it's sons of Abraham through faith faith and the promise just like Abraham had faith so those who rejected Jesus then start a new religion after the apostles are sent out and after the temple is destroyed about 70 AD you can really see this distinction between the Jews who reject Jesus and the Jews who believe Jesus who then bring in the Gentiles who likewise believe in Jesus and that's the church and that's Israel the ones who are sons of the promise.
0: Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is Joining us with Pastor Brian Wolf Miller to respond to your unanswered Bible questions. Donald has one about Paul saying that Hymenius Hemen- and Alexander were handed over to Satan.
3: This week on the Word of the Lord endures forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with almost persuaded. Paul sails for Rome, A Fateful Decision, Paul's I Told You So, and Approaching Land. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendoors.org or your favorite podcast provider. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and
1: mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective.
2: Spiritual and Religious You're listening to Issues Etc. Christological My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. Historical I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth.
1: And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived
3: by... Sacramental. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins.
2: To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church.
0: Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of "Reading Isaiah with Luther," and Pastor Brian Wolf Miller, author of "His American Christianity Failed." LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastors to serve as military chaplains. LCMS chaplains deliver Word and Sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families. Learn more at lcms.org/armedforces lcms.org slash armed forces. Pastor Wolf Miller, Donald has a question. What did Paul mean in 1 Timothy 1.20 when he said that he had handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme?
1: There's two parallel passages that I think inform this. The first is going to be Matthew 18 where Jesus talks about if someone sins against you, you go to them, then you take a couple elders, then you say to the church, and if they won't Repent, they become to you as one who is a tax collector and a sinner. That's where we get our doctrine of excommunication, excluding someone from the fellowship of the church. It seems like that's what Paul's talking about here, and especially when we compare it to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 to 5. And this is the situation where there was a man who was boasting about a sexual immorality. It seems like it was pretty—whatever was happening there was really pretty crooked, something that even the pagans— wouldn't have boasted about. And Paul says, I'll just pick it up in verse three. He says, for I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So that's a, a parallel passage to the one that's mentioned in the question. And it seems like it's the practice of excommunication where those who are boasting either in their sin or their false doctrine and refuse instruction and correction and refuse to repent are excluded from the Lord's church, excluded most especially from the Lord's supper. And that for the purpose of correction so that they might be received back into the fellowship of the Lord's altar. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians again, he says his punishment is sufficient. Receive him back. So that this handing over to Satan, withdrawing the protection and benefit of the supper, is for the person to be able to see their error, repent, and return to the gifts of God. So I think those are the two texts that best help inform what he's talking about there in 1 Timothy.
0: Steve has a question in Michigan, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. While leading a men's Bible study on Hebrews last Saturday, we read Hebrews 10.26, which talks about the fact that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We know this refers to the fact that there will not be a second sacrifice for sins. However, we were led from this to Mark 3.29, which says, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. One of the men asked if someone rejects the gospel, which is a sin against the Holy Spirit, and later comes to accept the gospel, is it too late for them since having blasphemed once the Holy Spirit, they will never be forgiven even if they come to faith later. Will they be forgiven even though it says they will never be forgiven?
3: Thank you, Steve, for giving me the opportunity to talk on uh, Hebrews chapter 10. I, I think that what we want to be clear about is this, that in this life, In this life, there is always that opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work through the means of grace, through the word and sacraments, through the gospel message to convert the heart, to assure the heart, cleansing the heart that you have a Savior, a high priest. And so it's in this chapter 10 here that that's going to be the significant passage that's going to tell us that the people of God are gathered to hear the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the whole point of chapter 10. This is a sermon that's delivered to the saints, gathered around the word and the sacraments, gathered around the promised presence of Christ. And so it's in chapter 10 of Hebrews where the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to us. He is speaking to us through the word. The gathered people hear the word of God through which the Holy Spirit is working in the heart. And what's he doing? Well, of course, he's putting God's laws on the heart and writing them upon the minds. And then he's also assuring us that because of Jesus, he remembers our sin no more. He remembers our lawless deeds no more. It is done away with. And so we have these two great things that we have. One who is the great priest, the one who gives us a confidence because of what he has done as the Lamb of God. So he has paid the price in his blood and with his flesh in the incarnation. He gave up his life unto death, sacrifice on the cross, so that we could be sure that we have the forgiveness of sins right now, we have eternal life right now, we have the adoption of sons. And as the great high priest, he continues to intercede for us in the ascension. So he continues to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us in the hearing of his voice that we would rejoice in. And so it's in this passage where you have this encouragement that we would draw near to God because of the blood of Jesus, that we would not waver in the confession of the hope that we have, that we would provoke one another to love and good works and to encourage one another to kind of fellowship together, to join together with this word that is heard. And so that's the whole context of this chapter here, that we do not waver and lose this confidence. If you stop attending, If you separate yourself from the means of grace and from the church of God, then this is where you're separating yourself from God. You're not drawing near, but you're running away and you're plugging your ear. And so the Holy Spirit works through these means. He works through this gathered word. And so that's why it's an encouragement here that we would not be like those who stop listening, stop receiving but instead we would be those who remain steadfast in this confidence because we have the gift of confidence so this is why the exhortation is therefore do not throw away your confidence at verse 35 and this is also where we understand that warning that warning that if we reject the person and work of christ and we resist the work of the holy spirit in our hearts And we try to find an alternate way to be righteous in God's sight by either pretending we don't have sin or by making up and making satisfaction for our own sin, that we have no fellowship with Jesus. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, his blood covers us. We are cleansed and we have a heart that's cleansed from an evil conscience. And so it's this exhortation to continue on that the Holy Spirit is working. And it's in the same passage in chapter 10 where Paul, like he does in Romans, and Paul will do in Galatians, it's the righteous shall live by faith. So it's not by works, but it's by faith in the person and work of Christ. And so the hope is that you are of those who have the faith because faith comes through hearing. And so there's always going to be that warning in the hearing that there is no root of bitterness that would spring up and cause trouble in your hearts. And so later on in chapter 12, you have the example of Esau. Even though Esau had the birthright, uh, Esau had the inheritance, yet that bitterness sprung up in him and he sold his birthright for some stew a single bowl of stew and we are not to be like esau we are sons of the promise who continue in the promise and continue to rejoice in the voice of jesus so that's the whole key here and yes if you reject jesus and you resist the holy spirit and you leave The whole church you leave the means of grace through which the holy spirit is working to convert your heart yes then you will stay in a state of unbelief and unrepentance if you remain in that state apart from the means of grace that's apart from the work of the holy spirit and you die in that sin of no faith then yes you have forfeited the inheritance that was given to you you have profaned the blood of the testament and you have outraged the spirit of grace. But it's always this encouragement that today is the day of salvation. And today is the day that we hear the word because right now we have a high priest, we have a mediator with the Father who continues to make intercession for us and continues to pour out the Holy Spirit, that we would be revived and brought alive in our faith and in our life. And we begin to walk in this newness of life and walk together rejoicing in the victory we have in Jesus.
0: Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is a Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, thank you very much for your time.
3: Oh, it's great to be here, Todd.
0: Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller one and he's author of several books, including his American Christianity Failed. Brian, thanks to you.
1: You're welcome, Todd. Thank you.
0: Next week on Issues etc., we'll talk with Dr. Randy Galuza about natural selection. We'll continue our series on the Lord's Prayer with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, and we'll discuss five lies of our anti-Christian age with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc.
2: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.
0: I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted
3: because I'm a part of His family through Jesus'
1: shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their
3: mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org.
0: Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit,
1: I say yes to God in His ways.
2: What makes Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois, so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m. Sunday school and Bible classes at
1: 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664.